Well, we have another glorious Friday afternoon here in Boston. That means it's time for another podcast. We're rolling a few weeks off, but we're back on the bandwagon. Indeed. Good to be back in the saddle. Is it a bandwagon? I don't know if it's a bandwagon. Podwagon? But... <laughs> Our guests are getting on the bandwagon, hopefully. That's true. We have a return guest today. We do. Jim Yule. Well, why don't I ring him up? Hey, Jim, welcome back to the show. We're psyched to bring you back on, of course, our favorite blogger for from uh, agilemarketing.net, but also the person that we had a great conversation with about user stories. And I hope that we can use this conversation to kind of dovetail into that previous one we had to uh, talk a little bit about different kinds of user stories and user stories that take us into the domain of testing. Right. So I know that that's a topic you've been thinking uh, a little bit about. So can we kick it off maybe just by having you talk a little bit about these other kinds of user stories of other, or other contexts in which you see people struggling to write user stories that have a different function? I started thinking about this when I, I started getting questions about could everything be represented in, in the context of a user story? And my answer to that eventually became, no, I, I really don't think so. Okay, and, and, I, and I, I was thinking about it in terms of things like if you're trying to identify if a new channel, you know, let's say you're a business and you're trying to figure out whether Instagram is a useful channel for you, okay? I, I don't really think that fits in the context of a user story, okay? Uh, similarly, if you're trying to optimize a particular channel, you know, you're trying to uh, optimize an AdWords campaign or you're trying to just optimize your advertising or something like that. I, again, I don't think it, it fits within the concept of a, of a user story. I was also influenced by some of the work that, I had seen um, Sean Ellis do. Uh, in fact, Roland, I think you were with me when uh, we attended an, an agile marketing meetup down in San Francisco. And, and uh, Sean talked about this concept that he called high tempo testing, which I just thought was really fascinating and, and, and dovetailed with some of the things that I was thinking about uh, in terms of these things that marketing does that don't fit into the framework of a user story. So, so that's kind of where I, I came to that they're user stories which represent, you know, the, the kinds of content that we're producing and can represent other kinds of things that marketing is doing. But there are also these tests, these experiments, these confirming of a hypothesis and things like that, that, that I think fit a different thing than user stories. Do you see a kind of black and white line between them or do you see, is there a bunch of gray area between them? I'm a guy who lives in gray areas. So I think there probably is some gray area, but in my experience in using this, we have tended to do one or the other. We, we've tended to either say something is something that we are really trying to identify the point of view of the user uh, in order to produce something that really works for the user, whether it be content or an event or, you know, whatever it is. And so we're, we're going to describe that in terms of a user story. And that's, that's one side. Or the other side is we're not so much focused on what the user is trying to do. We're more focused on trying to promote 
own our business and trying to improve the uh, uh, use of a particular channel or a particular advertisement. Or it's it's much more about we are out there doing this thing and and we want to understand how well it's working and how we can improve it. Uh, and so, uh, at least in usage for us in the in, in the companies that I have both run and and ones that I've worked with, we've done one or the other. We we haven't really had any gray area uh, between those two. What's the output of the testing? How does it manifest itself in new user stories, in new items for the backlog, tweaks to personas, or any or all no, of the above? I, <laughs> well, essentially, we add to the backlog this test, and we say, we think if we make this change to, you know, maybe a landing page, right? And, and we say, we're going to change the color of this button, or we're going to move the, the button from the bottom to the top or, you know, whatever the variable is that we're trying to, to, to test, then we're going to see an uplift in terms of, you know, if it's a, a landing page, you know, the conversion rate of that page, or if it's a, an ad, maybe the conversion rate of that ad or, or whatever it is. And so then we, we run the tests and the result is we either confirm the hypothesis or we've disproved it, you know, classic scientific method stuff. And once we perhaps have, have done one thing and we've made this change to the to landing page, um, then the follow-up to that is usually we're going to iterate on that landing page and make other changes to try to improve it even more. Okay? But fundamentally, isn't that at the service of a, a higher level user story where a prospect wants to be able to raise their hand so that they can get more information from the company. You know, that that's the conversion on a landing page, right? Right. So the optimization, you're just making that easier and e easier and easier for that user, or said another way, in the in the from the perspective of the business, you are decreasing the barriers to get that user through that particular user flow. So that kind of begs the question from my perspective, do you see tasks, tests sitting underneath, like hierarchically underneath user stories that are more traditional user stories? Well, I think they certainly can. I mean, uh, definitely we've seen ones where we've used a user story to create some particular content and we've written that. And then the next stage is to test the effectiveness of that content. And so uh, I think you absolutely are right and insightful to say that that's in a sense a uh, subsidiary to the the user story okay but i do think that there are some other times when we just say look we want to promote our product and here's some channels that we're looking at and we really didn't have in mind a particular user story and and also you sort of get into a a a, a mode where one of the things about a user story is that a user story has a, a, a assumes that the user has a conscious. I I want to uh, do this so I can you know achieve this goal and, and deliver this uh, benefit. Okay, and I think a lot of the things that we test when we test uh, improving landing pages and so forth, they aren't necessarily part of that whole conscious. Hey. Um, I'm trying to get some information and, and this is just making it easier for me to get this information. I think sometimes there are a lot of unconscious things and a lot of things that aren't, you know, the user isn't saying to themselves, hey, 
you know, this is, is, is fulfilling my user story better. Uh, just for whatever reason, they, they click on this or they respond to it in a better way, in an unconscious fashion. That is a fascinating kind of way of looking at it. I love that idea of conscious versus unconscious. Um, I'm just trying to sort of wrap my head around some specific examples that we could look at. So I, when I was at um, the Modern Marketing Experience event, I had a chance to see uh, a woman talk about some work that she'd been doing at Hilton where they were experimenting with exactly when should they present the user with the opportunity to upgrade their room. Should they present it to the user up front? Should they present it to the user in the middle of the um, selection flow? Or should they present it to the user right at the end, right before they were actually purchasing or clicking the purchase button, right? Right. And so I completely hear what you're saying about it would be it would feel like a stretch to tie that back to a user story. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and the user in that scenario, do they want an upgrade? Maybe they've got some consciousness around wanting an upgrade, but really the experience is about, I don't want to say manipulating the the user in this case, but certainly taking advantage of what might be some unconscious desires that they have. So what if I were a software developer and I would were, were, were working on, you know, moving buttons around an interface or uh, something equivalent, right? Because again, this is whether it's, I use, use the landing page optimization example. How would they handle that? Would they write a user story specifically about optimizing the placement of buttons on the user interface? I, I don't think so, Frank. I mean, I don't think that, Trying to write a user story in that case adds much value to what you know the the marketer or the developer who really is. When you say developer, yes, they are developing, but they're developing for the purpose of improving the conversion rate, which is kind of more of a marketing thing to do, right? And and so I don't think it adds anything to write a user story in that context. It just feels kind of like an exercise that, that doesn't add much to it. Um, and so at, at least what we've done is uh, we have a, uh, a spreadsheet, okay, that we use. And, um, you know, it's working off of some of the stuff that Sean Ellis does. And, and we just say, okay, what's the target lever? Okay, you know, maybe it's a, the position or the location of a sign-up box on a page. That's an example of a target lever. We also have, have something we call a category, which are, Things like, well, if, if you've ever seen the startup metrics for pirates, I forget the name of the guy who, who uh, did that. But anyways, it, it, you think about the different stages of the sales cycle that somebody is going through, whether it's be activation or, or uh, retention or, you know, whatever it is, okay, sort of thing. Uh, so we put a category in there. We have a variable that we're measuring, you know, in this case, maybe signups. We have some kind of prediction as to whether... There's going to be an increase or a decrease in these. And then we rate them. And this is where some of the Sean Ellis stuff comes in. He uses this method he calls ICE. Impact. What's the impact of this change likely to be from high to low? What's your confidence that it's actually going to happen? And then what's the ease of implementation? Um, so that's his ICE method. And, you know, he advises using this, and this is the, the process that we used, is we would essentially decide whether we're going to do this 
particular experiment or not based on its score on this, uh, you know, this ice uh, scale, essentially. So we just use a totally different process, if you will. And our backlog consisted of some things were user stories and other things were these experiments. And we kept one backlog with both those things in it. So I think we've talked about kind of two cases. It's one case where there's testing that's associated with the user story. And a second case where that's not really the case. It's just there isn't necessarily a user story. Maybe it's just tapping into some of, you know, unconscious opportunities that we have with that user. But let's just going back to the first case where there was a user story and we're building testing under it. Does this imply that there, like when we produce a user story, a new user, a new user story, we should think about including a battery of tests that are sort of subtasks or, or sub-stories that get broken down as we're doing our sprint planning in advance of actually you know, investing in the user story? Uh, I think so. One of the things that I observed when, when people were starting with content marketing is that they tended to re- to think about the production of a piece of content as a almost one-time thing. You know, I'm going to write this white paper, I'm going to edit it, you know, put it out there, and then it's, quote, done, right? And it, it, it never gets changed, and, and there isn't necessarily a sense of measuring what, what was the impact of doing that white paper, right? And I think it's pretty useful to start doing uh, measurement and, and, and start looking at, you know, what's working and what's not in regards to these white papers. Now, it may not mean that you go back and revise the original white paper. It may instead mean that the next white paper, you do something a little differently, and that's okay. But you may also decide to revise the white paper. I mean, there's nothing that says that once it's done, it can't be changed. I mean, I, I, so I, I think it, it is helpful from the beginning to think about, all right, if I'm to produce this piece of content, web page, blog post, white paper, whatever it is, how am I going to measure whether I'm successful in this? And what what tests am I going to do at the end of producing this to determine if I'm successful? So you're connecting, you're thinking in terms of what are the goals of the the asset before you actually create it. Yeah. So one of the things I'm in the middle of trying to update my content strategy, we do it kind of every six to 12 months. And with all the, you know, obviously personas, buyer journey, assets, the whole kind of holistic view of the whole thing. That's a separate document. It's not user stories. It's it's a content strategy. Yep. And then from that, we atomize it into things that drop into our agile process. But do you have experience kind of connecting the dots between those or have you always kind of keep, kept your content as a part of your agile process and not as a part of a, say, separate strategy, I guess, essentially a waterfall kind of strategy document that we've been working with. I've done something very similar to what you're describing, Frank, in that I have spent some time with teams trying to brainstorm essentially things that go into the marketing backlog, right? And one of the exercises that we've done is to you know, put together a, a, a matrix where we look at you know, the steps in the buyer's journey. We look at the various personas and we look at the content that we already have for right. each of those steps in the in the buyer's journey, uh, and then we look at the content that is clearly missing, and and we say, look, exactly, we, we got to start generating some content for these areas that are that are missing. These are, these are the gaps, yeah. These are the these holes. are the gaps, exactly, and those become user 
your stories and go into the marketing backlog and we write them as that. So as, as you described it as atomizing those particular gaps, that's what we do. We write user stories uh, to do that. Okay. Yeah, and that thing looks a lot like what Joe Chernoff and the guys at Eloqua did like five or six years ago and they made some matrix of buyer's journey versus it's, it looks a lot. I They did an infographic around it, which I think is probably the mental model that a lot of us use right now for that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the infographic, but I, I think it is a, a fairly common, um, you know, mental model of, of how to do it. Um, I, I generally added a third, I don't know if you want to call it a dimension or whatever, just a third aspect of, of looking at this. And, and that is that I do think different users want to see things in different formats, if you want to call it that, or delivery methods or whatever. And, and by that, I mean, you, you may want to, for a particular persona, for a particular stage in the, in the buyer's journey, you may want to deliver material as a blog post, as a webinar, as a white paper, as a right. podcast, as, you know, I mean, any, any of those different formats. Okay. Classic. And, yeah. And, yeah. Classic and, and, cross know, channel. Yeah. Right. And, and, and classically, you're going to deliver it in, in a variety of so, um, so I think that's very, very useful for coming up with some of the items in, in your backlog. Then for each one of those, you may decide, okay, how are we going to measure that we've reached our goals? Okay. You know, this is the whole business about setting smart goals, you know, specific, measurable, uh, actionable, et cetera. And, and, and if you decide I'm going to measure it with this, then you have to follow up and actually do the testing to be able to say, not just, Hey, there's a great white paper. Because, you know, it's good writing and good visuals and all that. But it's a great white paper because it improved our sign-up rate by 20%. And presumably there's, you know, some sequencing in the development of that content, right? Some some of that content is derivative of other content. So you're going to work on one asset that you're going to, as Frank said, you know, you're going to have a, you're going to slice and dice that piece of content up for your other channels, potentially. Sure. It, it does get back to um, the question, though, when you talk about, that framework where you there, you know, you need this portfolio of content. You've got some holes in that portfolio. In that case, you're going to develop a piece of content, and you're going to be, be basically looking to validate that that piece of content resonates with that audience at that stage of the funnel, right? Right. That's very different than the work that you would do on a piece of content that already exists and that you know there's good fit there you're going to be much more focused on optimizing the content. And so it, it kind of brings me back to the testing framework you talked about where there's some testing, which is just to validate whether or not the thing is even the thing you need. And there's another kind of testing, which is focused on let's optimize that thing. We know it's the right thing. Right. We just want to optimize it. Yeah. Sean Ellis used an interesting uh, analogy uh, in, in, a, in a talk that I heard him give. Uh, he, he was using the the game Battleship. I don't know if you played that when you were growing up, but, uh, you know, you, you do some pings to find out, you know, that there's a ship. OK. And then you do some other pings where you're basically trying to blow the thing out of the water. Right. <laughs> so he, right. He, he used the first one to be like you're trying to find out if this at all hits the mark. OK. And then the That's second true. one is the optimization. You know, you're trying to blow it out of the water. So, so I thought that was yeah. an, just an interesting analogy to help think about the two different kinds of tests that you do. Yeah, I think he, he talked about it as test to discover versus test to optimize. That's right. Yeah, that's yep. his language. Wow. That's good. Well, well, Jim, time flies. 
We will have to find another excuse to bring you back. You can be maybe our first three-time visitor on the on the pod, <laughs> four-time visitor on the podcast. But I am the I am the Law and Order podcast host, so okay. I have to enforce the time. And the good news is Jim is making agile marketing great again. No, that was a bad joke too. As well, <laughs> watching too much, too much time later, Frank. Okay, too much commentary. Anyways, but for those people who are looking for a way to make agile marketing great again, uh, and you want to come on the podcast and share a story about how you're making agile marketing great again, how's that? That's a better connection, right? You can you can ping uh, Roland at our smartly on Twitter or myself at Tangy Slice on Twitter. We are still on iTunes. We are still. Uh, on agilemarketingblog.com. You can find Jim Ewell at agilemarketing.net, among other really great places out there on the intertubes. But thank you again for joining us today, and uh, please stay agile.